you're having a normal reaction to a traumatic experience, you're not weak. Welcome to Conflict Chronicles, the podcast where battlefield stories are told. Share in the physical and mental experiences of those who have been on the front line of conflict. I am your host, Neil. This show may contain adult language and strong themes from conflict zones. Listener discretion is advised. Sarah Watson, a mother of two boys, an army veteran, Ironman triathlete, a champion and ambassador of veteran issues, an athlete for Australian veterans at Prince Harry's Invictus Games. Sarah grew up in the country town of Yass in Australia. She enlisted in the Army in 1997, completing her education at the Australian Defence Force Academy, ATFA. That was then followed by 12 months of officer training at the Royal Military College, Duntroon. In late 2006, she deployed to Iraq to provide strategic intelligence support to the Australian Battle Group. On returning to Australia, Sarah needed to take a break in her military service, only returning to the Army in 2010. For Sarah, things came to a head in 2013 when she was pregnant with her second child, finding out her much-loved father was diagnosed with cancer. She herself was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and major depression, slipping deeper into depression and experiencing more regular panic attacks Sarah sought further treatment, including attending a PTSD program in late 2014, which helped her immensely. In June 2015, Sarah was selected to cycle in the Australian Soldier On team that completed in a major cycle event in Italy. She cycled alongside other veterans affected by their service, as well as Tour de France winner Cadell Evans and Australian celebrity comedian Hamish Blake. She describes that experience as life-changing. Since her discharge from the army in 2015, Sarah's used cycling and more recently yoga to manage her PTSD symptoms. In 2017, Sarah took up racing Ironman triathlon events. Today on Conflict Chronicles, Sarah takes us back to her time in Iraq and the impacts it had on her. Sarah, take us back to one of those key events. One of the ones that sticks in my mind the clearest is uh, a time when I was um, flying from my base where I was stationed in Talil, which is Dekar province. Um, It was an American air base we were stationed on. The Australians uh, were there as a part of the overwatch for that province. And uh, my job required me to travel a bit. So... One of the roles I had was to um, keep, uh, I guess, open dialogue with our American and UK counterparts. So I had to travel to Basra, which obviously is southern Iraq, where the Brits were posted and stationed in order to meet with my sort of counterpart there who, would, who was doing the same job for the Brit- British. And so we flew in um, via uh, Australian aircraft into Basra, onto the airstrip. And as soon as we sort of landed, the airstrip came under fire, indirect fire. 
attack. And uh, I remember just there being a lot of commotion and screaming and yelling and us being sort of manhandled off the aircraft and directed to take cover wherever we could, which in the middle of an airfield, there's nothing much to take cover behind. So I was sort of dragged by a Lodi aircraft's loadsman um, to a to the refueling truck who had come out onto the airstrip to come and refuel the aircraft. So I was just, yeah, thinking, wow, this is probably not a great situation to be in, taking cover behind a fuel tanker in, uh, in an indirect fire attack. <laughs> and, yeah, there was moments and that sort of felt like it was like a slow motion time frame where time sort of stood still and lots of noise and wasn't sure whether I was going to come out of that. So was that the the first time you'd ever been under any sort of attack? That was the sort of closest and most sort of uh, dramatic ID indirect fire attack I'd been exposed to. I had been experiencing it in Talil Air Base, but the insurgents that were directing fire at us were getting getting it not so close um, as to what the uh, the guys were sort of more, more targeting um, down in Basra. Um, so, yeah, I had been exposed to mortar fire in, in Iraq, but uh, in Talil, in a different part of Iraq, but not, I guess this was also in the first few months of my tour and, um, yeah, the situation was a bit more hairy down in Basra uh, than where we were at the time. You talk about indirect fire. So they're firing rockets at the airfield and as you're landing then basically? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they weren't hitting anywhere near the, the aircraft, but it was loud enough and you could feel the reverberation in the ground and enough to sort of be important in your life at that moment in time. But, yeah, it was it – was. You say that time slowed down a little bit. What was going through your mind? Flashes of my parents, friends at home, um, my nieces, my brother, all those sort of people important to me kind of came into my head, just made me kind of realise how lucky I was have the family I had and um, lucky I was to be in a country that didn't have to experience this sort of thing. How did you feel after the event? What was the emotions post that? For me, I didn't deal too well post sort of the situation, although at the time I didn't um, have time to really re- react. You kind of, that was it. Like you, you moved on to the next thing because that's what you were there for. So eventually we were taken to the place where I was meeting my counterparts and got on with the meetings and um, didn't really have time to really think about it at that point uh, until I was lying in the temporary accommodation on the sort of outskirts of the Basra Air Base. <laughs> then we, the base came under indirect fire again at night, in the middle of the night, and I remember sort of scrambling under this, um, my stretcher into the shell scrape that was underneath. and with all my helmet and body armour and all that on, thinking, holy crap, I'm in a tent. Like, there's, what's this, like, shell scrape going to do for me? <laughs> so, again, that that gave me time. And because I didn't have anything immediately after, or, you know, to go to because um, that was in the middle of the night, I there was a lot more time to sort of freak out and, and think about the situation I was in and actually feel quite scared and um, and wondered if I would come out of Basra alive. 
you were clearly working as an individual, so you didn't have a lot of people around you to directly support like a normal military team. You're right, Neil. I was actually uh, attached liaison officer for the Overwatch Battle Group, Australian Battle Group that was stationed in Iraq. I was the top secret uh, sort of intelligence conduit for the battle group. And so my role was very kind of individual in terms of I had a specific role to do to support the battle group and that role involved interacting with um, UK um, GCHQ equivalents and US NSA equivalents. So, yeah, I, I guess my role was unique in that it required me to do a fair bit of work on my own and travel on my own. So you're underneath your stretcher in a tent and you've got no one really to turn to and you rightly say that you felt very scared. How did you cope through that period of time? I guess, again, I didn't sleep, needless to say, that night. Um, uh, But the next day, again, cracked on with the meetings planned for the day and liaising, learning about the new uh, technology coming into the, the area. And so, yeah, I was just focused on that mission that I was there to do and it was kind of good that the operational tempo was so sort of fast that I didn't have time, too much time to stop and wonder because obviously once you start getting in your own head and getting down that um, spiral of thinking, oh, what if, what if, then it's not a good place to be when you're still in a kind of a volatile situation. So for something like that, how well did you feel trained to cope I was trained through uh, officer training at Royal Military College Dundee to become an infantry platoon commander. That's what the uh, tick in the box was to graduate. Never once in that training did we ever sort of do a, a response to an indirect fire attack. Or, so, yeah, it was more like the traditional tactical advance on a hill to destroy the enemy. Um, so, yeah, there was very little in terms of mentally preparing for that situation or even physically preparing. We had actions on, don your, uh, you know, helmet, body armour. You already didn't have it on and find shelter as best you could. Uh, There's not really much else you can do in the face of an indirect fire attack when bombs are dropping. Just kind of survival instincts that kick in and get to shelter. You left there after 72 hours. You had to get back on an aircraft to your own location how were you feeling about that? I kind of compartmentalised that 72 hours in a Basra. I got back on an aircraft. It was a helicopter. We did low f- tactical flying all the way back from Basra to Talil, which was pretty scary in itself. So I was just gripping on to the side, watching the ground go past beyond below me. Um, got back to Talil, thought, oh, wow, this is a peaceful kind of environment. With only sort of every few days indirect fire coming down because when I was in Badzer, it was pretty relentless. Um, I guess, yeah, I compartmentalised, got on with the job, had all the new information I needed to continue to crack on with my role. Was there anything else that really started to bring these events to the forefront for you? I hadn't realised at the time, but my adrenaline or adre- adrenal system had been kind of kicked into full-blown action by then and I was in sort of a hyper-vigilant mode following that experience. Um, what I did notice physically was that I was sleeping less. I was, uh, yeah, like I said, quite hypervigilant. I was um, very jumpy and um, 
I also noticed physically my hair started to fall out and turn grey at the same time. There were physical manifestations through the stress, obviously, that I had started to accumulate during that time and um, there was no real respite, I guess, because the tempo, I was working sort of 6am to 10pm most days, seven days a week. Um, And so obviously your body and your your mind and everything is in overdrive for an extended period, very difficult to reset and recharge. You talked about your family back home and you were talking about your parents. At some point you would have communicated with them. How was that talking to them and you were feeling both physically and mentally quite worn down? I didn't have great comms back to Australia back in 2006. We didn't we had phones that we could use and we had the occasional ability to send emails. Um, so, and I think that was fortunate for me because my my dad especially, I think it wasn't, he was quite stressed about me, quite worried, And but I didn't know this until I returned from my deployment. He'd spent months in hospital, various physical Ill- illnesses. So whether that was manifested through stress um, and, and then my parents never told me he was so unwell. Otherwise, obviously, I'd be even more stressed out um, than, yeah. So I would just, yeah, I'd really take the time to sort of send them emails about nothing sort of to worry them, but more about the people I was meeting in my in my roles, the the very the different countries we were working with, um, the fact that I could use my French from time to time with some of the different forces we were working alongside the dining facility run by the Americans and the enormity of it and how it was a huge eye-opener for, for us. And, yeah, just stuff that didn't relate at all to the actual operations that we were doing at all and any threats that we were sort of exposed to. Do you think that's possibly a mechanism where you were trying to keep some of that fear inside of you at arm's length by communicating the more positive things? Obviously, for operational security reasons, you wouldn't want to be sharing what was going on too much anyway. Um, but yes, also to sort of keep it at an arm's length, like you said, so it wasn't sort of something popping back into your mind all the time by sharing it and talking about it. And I think that's why we in the military do well with compartmentalising, um, and especially in those scenarios where you don't have time to really reflect and process what was going on because of the intensity um, of the, the operation you're in. So in that, in that way, it's really important to ensure that if you are exposed to sort of traumatic events and everyone's definition of a traumatic event is different, so you can't compare. But, yes, it's important if you find something that's not sitting well within yourself from something you've been exposed to, then nine times out of ten, if you don't process or deal with that, it's going to lead to problems down the track. How were you feeling about getting out of Iraq and getting back to Australia? I was really ready to leave after my six month, uh, seven month tour ended up being. Um, I was just exhausted. I was, I'd lost weight. I was sort of, I just was extremely worn out and ready to to leave. I actually even questioned why we were there. Um, I wasn't sure the real mission was authentic um and so you know i had moments of really questioning my role in iraq and also my continued role within the australian army given 
I felt like I hadn't reacted appropriately. I, 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 like I said, I had started to really, I didn't know the term back then um, for what I was experiencing, but was actually something real. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I felt like I felt a weak kind of link in the, in the team and that I should probably be doing something different with my life. So you land back in Australia What's the first thing you did when you got back into Australia and took the uniform off? I put in my discharge papers. I wanted to leave. So I um, spoke to my careers advisor that I don't think I'm suited to the army. Um, she convinced me, luckily, she saw my potential, maybe understood that I had had a difficult time and suggested I just maybe think about it and take leave without pay instead. Um, so I took a period of 18 months leave without pay at that point. During that time, did you get some clarity? I just didn't deal with anything that I came home with, as in I put it in a nice little compartment within my back of my psyche, I guess, and I tried to just start a new life, as it were. Like I moved overseas. I. I became someone's fiance. I I wasn't really Sarah Kingston, the army officer. Um, I was Sarah, the pool lifeguard, while studying a master's degree. And I was, yeah, I was a fiance. So I was like the homemaker. Nobody knew me. So I could just hide behind my new identity, I guess, and not talk about Iraq or think about it. But eventually you did go back to the army? Yeah, I did. I had to uh, live without pay, obviously, trying to study and or pay a mortgage. I had to really um, consider my options. And I thought by then I felt a lot better in myself. I'd, you know, I'd graduated from my university master's degree and I'd regained a bit of confidence in myself. Um, and I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll go back and just see how I go. I need a job anyway. And then maybe look for other opportunities once I'm back in the army. But I went back and I was in a completely different role in intelligence, which I started to really enjoy working with other agencies like the Australian Federal Police and um, some other security agencies on a domestic security sort of front. Um, And yeah, so things, again, I could sort of keep down the, the thoughts and memories from my time in Iraq. But ultimately, you made the decision to leave the army. What happened was that the posting after my return posting from Leave Without Pay, I was put in a role which was an intelligence analyst role on Middle East. And one of those countries I was responsible for reporting on was Iraq. And at that point, it was when things started to unravel. I started to not sleep again. I had, you know, focusing on a country I had not sort of pro- processed the memories from, um, brought up a lot of stuff. Yeah, I started to realise things weren't quite right. Following on from that, I guess I was diagnosed eventually with post-traumatic stress disorder um, from my Iraq deployment. And I might add here, um, this is quite personal, but I also had been exposed to um, some horrific sort of assault and abuse during my officer training. So that I had not dealt with either. And I think a whole bunch of unprocessed trauma had sort of bubbled its way up to the surface 
manifesting in this condition, post-traumatic stress. I guess once the military found out about that, I did try and keep it on the lowdown and didn't inform the chain of command, but eventually, like with any medical condition, these things come out and need to be managed and at that point in time, the army weren't prepared to keep me because I was no longer able to keep my security clearance, being on medication and and things like this. So eventually I was medically transitioned out. Sarah, what would you tell your 18-year-old self and the advice you'd give to them now, knowing what you know and all the things you've been through? Oh, what's that? Is it the, um, it ain't weak to speak? I think if I'd kind of realised as a young officer when I was maltreated or mistreated that I had the right to speak up, it wasn't a, an army in which it was encouraged to do that and so that's why I kept my mouth shut. In doing so, I probably hurt myself and potentially hurt other women behind me who may have had the same poor treatment or abuse or you know treatment they should not have been exposed to. Then I would say to my 18-year-old self, report that person. Don't take that. You're not, you don't deserve to be treated like that. No one deserves that treatment. And also with my time in Iraq, I would have been a lot kinder and gentler on myself and said, you're having a normal reaction to a traumatic experience. You're not weak. So um, I would have got the help I needed at that time. Maybe I still would be in the military now if I had had the proper rehabilitative processes um, and support that I needed at my worst but instead you know where I find myself nearly six years post army a career that I I really used to love and I miss I'm a stronger person for getting through it it's incredibly brave of you to speak to me today and I'm really really grateful and I know there are an enormous amount of people out there that will be also very grateful well thank you Neil thanks for doing what you do in sharing stories of different people's experiences Thank you, Sarah. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on Conflict Chronicles. You can stay in touch by connecting with us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcast from. If you have a story or know of a story that should be told, contact us by our webpage at the My Story section. Conflict chronicles.com